Good. Thank you. Let's pray and seek the Lord to speak to our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, wonderful morning, the Lord's Day. You have given us to fellowship together as a church. We are your blood-bought community, and you have given us your word to enlighten our minds and to sanctify our lives and to direct us in this short life that we live in this world so that we may behold the glory and the majesty of your name and at the same time understand what you have in store for us. Almighty God, precious Redeemer, King of kings, Lord of lords, ruler of the nations of the earth, we bow before you and we pray that you speak to our hearts. We pray that you open the eyes of our hearts. We pray let this words not fall on the dead hearts that these words would revive the souls of people and accomplish the purpose of your heart we believe that you are the lord who is able to do beyond what we ask and imagine and we ask you that you honor your word and honor your name and come and visit us in a special way today help us not to be dull in our hearing but be diligent and be devoted to your word and apply your word to our lives so that we would live a different life for the glory and honor of your name. We welcome your presence, your work, your will amidst us. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we offer this prayer with thanksgiving. Amen. Amen. As you know that uh, the title that I have given to the message today is Christ the High Priest of the New Covenant. Christ the High Priest of the New Covenant. You know, one of the most difficult surgeries, in fact, we may even say that the most serious surgery is heart transplantation. It takes long, long hours and much serious consideration before somebody would ever perform heart transplantation. And they do it only as a last resort. When all the treatments fail, all of the surgeries fail, the only last resort where the heart cannot function by itself is heart transplantation. And according to the research, there are a lot of side effects even after surgery. Sometimes uh, heart attack and uh, kidney issues and a lot of serious, perilous side effects even after the surgery. And it is also said that about 15 to 20% mortality rate is there within a year after the heart transplantation. It's a very serious and highly mortal surgery. And this we are talking about the physical heart transplantation. When we know the heart of a man and when we understand how sinful and terrible and horrible the heart is, we wonder whether this heart transplantation is really possible and if it is possible, who would ever do that? And you know one thing, the good news of the new covenant is the covenant of heart transplantation of a man so that he would live according to to the will of God and for the glory of God. 
and I have been going through a couple of chapters since many months, going through, journeying through the book of Hebrews, and we have seen one through six chapters, and we have seen in the first chapter how the author was arguing about the supremacy of Christ over angels. And then we see in chapter 2 how the author argued about the supremacy of Christ over Moses. And then we have seen from chapter 5 till 7, the author argued for the supremacy of Christ over the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. And then from chapters 8 through 10, we see the argument of the author of Hebrews, how Christ is supreme over the Old Covenant. Because if you read the Old Testament and if you read the lives of the Jews, their entire lives were reigned by the Old Covenant. And uh, as we have heard a couple of times, that these people were tempted and persecuted and tempted and lured back to Judaism because of which the author was arguing with this audience the vanity of turning to the old covenant because of its ineffectiveness. And he was calling them to turn to Christ. Christ alone is sufficient and is supreme over everything. And as we delve into this important issue of the old covenant and how it affects the way you read your Bible also, I would like to first mention the state of the old covenant that the author is speaking here. And one thing that I would like to request you as I'm going to baptize you today with so many scriptures. You will be soaked into the scriptures today. So every time I quote the scripture in order for you to pay attention and comprehend well, I encourage you to read along with me. Open your mouths and follow me every time I read the scripture. Now see here, this may be very troubling when you read it for the first time. The words that he uses when he speaks about the old covenant, the Mosaic law. And he says here in Hebrews chapter 7 verses 18 through 19. What does it say here? For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to the near to God. And we, we see here that there are two words that he uses to describe the state of the old covenant, the Mosaic law. And what are the two words that he uses? Weakness and uselessness. And if you go further and see chapter 8 verse 7, he uses another word when he describes the old covenant. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So when he said that, when the first covenant had been faultless, what is he saying? The opposite word. It was faulty. And because the old covenant was faulty, the second covenant had to come in existence. Now these words are very troublesome, right? When he uses and describes the state of the old covenant, particularly in the first century, to the Jews. He says here, the old covenant was weak, the old covenant was useless, the old covenant was faulty. Now we need to be very careful when you read this because 
you may go to the other extreme and may bring out something that he did not intend to say you remember psalm 19 he speaks about the law is perfect reviving the soul romans 7 paul argues that the law is holy and righteous so when the when the author is talking about the law's weakness uselessness and faultiness he is not speaking in the sense of sinfulness or in the state of morality he is not speaking about that what he is speaking about this law here is that the law was ineffective to save sinners that's the main thing that he was pinpointing and nailing down into the minds of his readers that the law was ineffective to save sinners and in order for us to understand how it was ineffective we need to understand the pattern of the old covenant how the law and especially we need to understand when he was speaking about you know uh, the uselessness weakness and even faultiness he's not speaking about the entirety particularly speaking about the old testament sacrificial system which was not able to deliver people from the bondage of sin and let us look at the pattern of the old covenant how it was and it will really give us a brief tour on how the old covenant was and how the law was practiced we see that in hebrews chapter 9 verse 1 now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness he says that there were regulations and there was earthly place of holiness so in order for people to have the holiness of god amidst them they had to follow certain regulations and what were the regulations he describes tabernacle because tabernacle was the earthly place of god's presence and holiness with the people of israel and and his tabernacle his presence with the people of god distinguished them from all the nations of the earth and this is how he describes about the tabernacle he speaks about first the first section which we call the holy place he says that in chapter 9 verse 2 for a tent was prepared the first section in which were three things what were they the lampstand the table and the bread of the presence it is called the holy place the lampstand was in the there was the outer place where the altar was and only the priest could enter into the holy place this is not the holy of holies we are talking about the holy place in which there were three elements the lampstand which was burning day and night the light of the lampstand should never go off and also we see the bread on the table it was in two piles on the right pile six loaves of bread and the left side six loaves of bread each bread representing the tribe of israel and that was the first uh, uh, section and then he speaks about the second section right the second section is actually the holy of holies he says in chapter 9 verse 3 to 5 behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place and what was there in the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna 
and Aaron's staff that burden, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. He says here that in the second section, there were primarily two things. What were they? The golden altar of incense, which was burning and being offered unto God. And then the Ark of the Covenant, which is the most important element in the tabernacle. And it was covered all sides with gold. And what were they in the Ark of the Covenant? He says the first thing. What is that? The golden urn holding manna which the people of Israel, it's a miraculous food that God provided for them in wilderness. And as a sign of remembrance, he wanted them to store that manna in a golden vessel and put it in the Ark of the Covenant. And then we see Aaron's staff that budded. One day God called and he said that, bring out every tribe one staff. And out of all the 12 staffs, only Aaron's staff budded. It sprouted. And it yielded ripe almonds, which symbolized and which spoke to the people that God has ordained Aaron and his family to be the priests before him. And then we also see the tablets of the covenant, the ten commandments that God wrote with his finger should be there in the ark of the covenant. And above the ark we see the mercy seat that is called the mercy seat covered with cherubim. The glory overshadowing the mercy seat. It's very simple. The way it looks is very simple, but it symbolizes the holiness of the Lord. And then it describes actually about, after he spoke about the first section and the second section, he speaks about the ministry of high priests. Now what happened after that? He says in chapter 9, verses 6 to 7, the third section he speaks about is now the ministry of high priest. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly in the first section, performing their ritual duties. The priests, remember that, only priests went into the holy place. But in the second section, only the high priest goes and he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. We see here that how in the holy place, the high priest went once a year and he sprinkled blood on the mercy seat as an atonement for his own sin and also for the sins of people. Now, the most important thing that we see in all this thing is the reason why the high priest existed is to make atonement for the sins of people and the way he did so is by sprinkling blood on the mercy scene and why blood the scripture itself testifies in chapter 9 verse 22 hear this carefully why blood indeed under the law almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins because sin is a great, terrible offense against the holy God. And the punishment for any sin is death. And if the sin should be forgiven, the atonement for sin should be death. And in the Old Testament, it was the death of the animals. But it was important that 
without the shedding of blood, without someone, something dying, which is an animal in the Old Testament, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now the point comes to us is, now why does he say, the author say, that the law was weak, useless, and also at the same time, ineffective, right? The, I will be explaining the ineffectiveness of the old covenant, right? The first thing is this, hear this carefully. In the old covenant, praise God that we are not in the, under the old covenant when we understand how the old covenant was. In the old covenant, the law limited the access of all the people of God to the presence of God. In the old covenant, the law limited the access of all the people of God to the presence of God. Who was the only person who can approach the presence of God? The high priest. Not even the priest. Only high priest and that too once a year. We see that in Hebrews 7, 18 to 19. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. And what is the better hope? Through which we draw near to God. Because the access was limited in the Old Testament. The second reason why the Old Covenant was ineffective is that in the Old Covenant, the law chose men who were weak and mortal. In the Old Covenant, the law chose men who were weak and mortal. We see that in Hebrews 7.28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. The law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. And who were these high priests? These were sinful people. They were not perfect people. And they were offering sacrifice for their own sins and also for the sins of others. The third reason why the old covenant was ineffective is that in the old covenant, the law couldn't provide the perfect sacrifice for people's sins. It couldn't provide the perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice that was offered on the altar for the forgiveness of people's sins was imperfect. You see what it says in Hebrews 10, 1 to 4. Follow carefully. It's a long sentence. You have to pay careful attention and absorb what the intention of the author is in this passage. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Let me repeat once again. It can never, old covenant can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. We see that it was a temporal system, the shadow, which could never take away sins permanently. So it was imperfect. Hebrews 10.11 also says that, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly we see that not only once a year i told you last sunday that they were also daily sacrifice one in the morning another in the evening 
daily at his sacrifice at, at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins so the law was imperfect in that system and the fourth thing is and why did god give i will tell you later in the old covenant the fourth thing is that in the old covenant the law couldn't transform people's lives it only informed them about the standards of god but it didn't give them the power to obey the law because of which we see that this is what we see when the lord said about the new covenant this is what he said and if you read romans 7 he argues very clearly that how the lord told him to some to do something but he had no power to do it but the law was good but the sin in me did not let me to obey it because i was a slave to sin and he says in hebrews 8:7 to 9 about how the law was ineffective in transforming people's lives it says here for if that first covenant had been faultless there wouldn't have been no occasion to look for a second for he finds fault with them when he says behold the days are coming declares the lord when i will establish a new covenant with the house of israel and with the house of judah now hear what he says not like the covenant that i made with their fathers on the day when i took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of egypt for they did not continue in my covenant you see what he says here he says that these people could not keep the covenant these people could not obey the law and in that the law was not effective in transforming lives an old testament scholar j a thompson says it this way he says that they had not merely refused to obey the law or to acknowledge yahweh's complete and sole sovereignty but were incapable of such obedience they were incapable of obedience to the law so many laws were there and they couldn't keep it and the question comes then why then the law then then why did god give law when he knows that people couldn't keep them and the law couldn't change them then why he gave them galatians 3:19 answers the question it says here that why then the law same question that we are that we ask why then the law it was added because of transgressions you know what does it mean what it means is that the law was given to show the sinfulness of man's heart for without the law man wouldn't be knowing how sinful he is it is to inform and reveal the depravity of man and how long how long that happens see the tense over there it says that until until the offspring should come who is nothing but christ to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through the angels by my, by an intermediary so what it shows is that and immediately after that he says that the law was given to point people to the gospel of christ to show people how sinful they are so he says the word tutor it acted as a tutor and it brought you to the gospel it was not given so that you can live by the law and be saved by the law but so that by the law you would know sin in your own heart and behold the need of the lord jesus christ you know there were couple of confessions in the history of the church so many confessions and one of the confessions was helvetic confession and the second helvetic confession is nothing but the swiss confession the council that happened in switzerland and in the second confession it is during 1536 this is what the confession records which clearly explains why the law 
This law was not given to man that they might be justified by keeping it. But that rather from what it teaches, we may know our weakness, know our sin, know our condemnation. And despairing of our strength might be converted to Christ in faith. This is the purpose why God gave the law. So what is the ineffectiveness of the law? To summarize quickly, in the old covenant, the law limited the access of all the people of God to the presence of God. And second, we see in the old covenant, the law chose men who were weak and mortal. And the third we have seen in the law, in the old covenant, the law couldn't provide the perfect sacrifice for people's sins. And the fourth reason we have seen in the old covenant, the law couldn't transform people's lives. So let us now look at the new covenant. Then what did the new covenant do? What did the new covenant do? And who is the hero, the guarantor, the mediator, the high priest of the new covenant? First, I would like to begin with the person Christ here. It says here in Hebrews 7, 11 to 12. It is good if you can, you can follow and read loudly so that you can see the beauty of the scripture that mentions about the supremacy of Christ in each of the passages that I will be reading for you. It says in Hebrews 7, 11 to 12, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather one named after the order of Aaron? Now here, how he puts over here, there. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So if Christ did not come in the order of Aaron... But in the order of Melchizedek, which means that God, by choosing Christ in the order of Melchizedek, put an end to the old sacrificial system in the Mosaic law. And he introduced the new covenant. Hebrews 7.22 says here, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The guarantor of a better covenant. Now, now see the comparative words used three times in Hebrews 8 verse 6. Hebrews 8 verse 6. More excellent, better than, and better. See the comparative words. Excellent, better, better. Better than what? Excellent than what? It says here that, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry. What ministry? Priestly ministry that is as much more excellent than the old. The priestly ministry of Christ was much more excellent than the Levitical priesthood. And then first he speaks about the priestly ministry. And second he speaks about what? As the covenant immediates, which is a new covenant, is better. The covenant immediates in the new covenant is better than the old covenant. And then he says, since it is enacted on better promises. You see that? Bet excellent ministry. And better covenant and better promises, which are the new covenant promises, which I will be explaining later how grand and glorious the new covenant promises are. And I'm telling you, my dear brothers and sisters, you must be thinking, now we are here, why should we know all these things? You should know the history to understand how much indebted we are to the new covenant. That should increase our worship of the supremacy of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ he says again, Hebrews 8.13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, which means he makes it inactive. The old covenant is inactive. And what is becoming obsolete 
and growing old is ready to vanish away. And then you see how many times it says about how Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. Hebrews 9.15, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. Hebrews 10.9, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Do you see here? It says that the way the old covenant has become obsolete, inactive, and the new covenant became active is through the person Jesus Christ. And how it came into fulfillment, we will go and look into it. How is the second covenant, which is the new covenant, better than the old covenant? The first thing we have seen in the old covenant, what, what is the first thing? We have seen that in the old covenant, the law limited the access of all the people of God to the presence of God. People listen to this carefully. If there was no old covenant, if there was no Christ, you wouldn't have enjoying the presence of the living God in your life now. If you see that, in the new covenant, all God's people have direct access to the most holy place through Christ Jesus. Now, before Christ has really uh, given us a privilege, the Bible says that, now you should know that in the tabernacle, right, in the temple structure, even Christ did not enter into the holy place. Do you know that? A lot of people don't think about that. In the old the old temple system was there in the first century. When, when Christ ministered, it was only in the outer place or outer parts of the temple. He never went into the holy place. He never went into the most holy place. Why? Because only priests were allowed. But he went into the better presence than what these people have enjoyed. These enjoyed the limited presence of God. But Christ entered into the infinite presence of God. In the order of Melchizedek. That's the argument he makes. You see about how Christ, after he paid for the sins of people, what happened? Hebrews 8, 1 to 2. Now we come to 8 and he speaks about here. Now the point in which, in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. Where is he seated? One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. Just think about this. Which was better? The most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was and the presence was in some way limited but sitting at the right hand of the throne of the majesty which speaks about the glorious manifesting presence of God and he went directly to heaven and he sat at the right hand of God in heaven a minister in the holy places in the true tent you see the word it doesn't mean that that was a false tent what he meant is this is a better tent in comparison to the old testament which was limited it was a true tent that the Lord set up who set up actually the Lord set up it is not man if you see that the tabernacle was built by Men, the temple was built by men. But here, the heaven is the abode of God and it is built by God and that's where Christ has went on our behalf. And he says in 924, for Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands. Again, he's speaking about, he didn't get into the tabernacle, the temple holy place, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Did the priest have the privilege to go to heaven and behold the infinite majestic presence of God? No, they didn't have it. But Christ, who is the supreme high priest, he went into heaven itself. Now to 
appear in the presence of God on whose behalf? Now, when the Bible says on our behalf, are you included? Are you included or excluded? I think I am included. You are doubting about yourself, but I am certain. I am absolutely certain that Christ has entered into the presence of God on my behalf. Now, why does it particularly say on our behalf? Now, you should think about it. Why does it say? You can just say that Christ, in fact, actually, Christ come, came from the presence of the Father. And he went to the presence of the Father. But it particularly says that he went into the presence. Now, you need to understand that the Bible, when it speaks about the rest and even salvation or tent or behind the curtain, all these are nothing but the presence of God. And Christ has went there on our behalf. You know, what does it mean on our behalf means? So that through him, you can also get into that presence. For our sake even. Because we cannot go by ourselves into the presence of God. Why? Because of sin. We cannot go. Christ had to go on behalf of us. So that through Christ alone, you would get into the presence and of God. And how it is possible? The author describes it is possible now here to some extent. But to the infinite extent, we will be enjoying that. In the future, in the present, we still have the taste of the presence of God. In Hebrews 7, 18 to 19. Hebrews 7, 18 to 19. What, do, what does it say you see here? For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. And what is that? Through which we draw near to God. People, I'm telling you, the greatest blunders, you know, what I see is that and as I think about ourselves, the privilege that we Christians have, the worldly people don't know the presence of God. They don't know the one and the only true God. They are blinded by the devil and they think that the idols are the living God. And we Christians claim that we have come to know the one and the only true living God. But you know what is the worst thing about Christians? Who say that they believe in God. They are not aware of the new covenant privilege, grand, glorious privilege that we have to draw near to the heart of God. And yet so many Christians live away from the heart of God. So many, only religious life they live, come to church and get into some kind of activities. But there is no hunger to draw near to the heart of God, which wasn't possible in the old covenant, which is not possible for the pagan nations. But you and I have the privilege, it says here, through the new covenant, through Christ, we can now appear and draw near to God. Now, this is the very reason the Bible says Christ has went to heaven on our behalf. If you look at Hebrews 5, 14 to 16, I'm going back and forth here so that the theme is highlighted. It says here that since we have a high priest who has passed through the heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Because he has gone through, listen to this carefully, 14 says that because Jesus has died for our sins and gone through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, he says that now, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And now he concludes, since Christ has went into heaven on our behalf, it says here that let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you see that? We have the taste of approaching the throne of grace now. We can still go. 
and let me tell you brothers and sisters hear this carefully sin does everything possible the devil does everything possible the world does everything possible to keep you away from the throne of grace and then we have also the future as we taste here the foretaste of it the glorious sight after we die and when we see heaven is to behold the glorious son of god and the father in heaven hebrews 6:28 says so christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time do you see that there is a promise he came for the first time he died for the sins of people and the second time when he comes he is not going to pay atonement it has already been done the second time is coming not to deal with sin but you see what it says but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him brothers and sisters what are you waiting for what are you waiting for one of the true signs of a born again christian you know it's there are many you know the the, the mysterious thing about christianity is you can fake a lot actually you can fake a lot honestly you can fake that you are born again christian you can fake that you are baptized you are fake that you are a believer of christ all those things but one of the genuine signs of every born again christian you know what is that they eagerly wait lord when are you coming that is my cry constantly lord i don't want to live in this world this world is sinful my heart is sinful and i'm away from you and i want to behold you i want to dwell with you i want to look to your face and that is what the great encouragement is given here is that i am bored in this world and what a glorious sight it will be to be saved and enter into the presence of god and christ is coming and he will come because he has promised heaven and earth will pass away but his word will never pass away he is coming to save those save means what here to bring people into the presence of god to bring all those who are waiting for him into the presence of god will you be there examine yourself will you be there hebrews 6:19 20 we have this as a sure and steady anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the holy place behind the curtain where jesus has gone as a forerunner on whose behalf on our behalf having becoming a high priest forever after the order of melchizedek so what do we see here it says that Christ has went on our behalf he will be coming again he will take us to be with him forever and ever and let us wait do not lose your waiting do not lose your focus do not lose your hunger because your home is not here i think it was today or yesterday i was praying that and one of the things that i i think i learned from j packer often saying this word heaven is my home earth is my pilgrimage heaven is my home that's where i belong this is not my home and i die any time i leave all the people i leave all everything death may come any time this is my pilgrimage heaven is my home and what a great privilege it is to enter there because of the one high priest and that is the lord jesus christ hear this carefully people christ jesus is our only high priest and i say this emphatically because today people have made pastors as mediators between god and man pastors are not mediators pastors are not more closer to god than you are you understanding yes pastors can pray pastors can intercede for you which is good 
But they are not mediators. People think that if you go through the pastors, God will listen to your prayers. That is crime, I say that. A doctrinal crime in the new covenant. No. You can go to God directly. You can talk to God. You don't need a man. There is only a mediator. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ who had died for our sins, rose from the dead, entered into heavens for our sake. And we can go to the presence of God any time. The second thing, as I told you, the new covenant is better than the old covenant. We have seen in the old covenant, the Lord chose men who were weak and mortal. But in the new covenant, Christ is our perfect high priest and we don't need any high priest anymore. We see that in Hebrews 7.28, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. We have a perfect high priest, praise God. Hebrews 5.9, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now here doesn't mean that obey him doesn't mean you need to keep the commandments of God in order to be saved. Be careful of it. Obey hearing means believing in him. Those who believe in him and those who are justified by faith in him that putting our faith in Christ saves us. And of course, following is obeying the commandments of the law, Lord, which is a secondary thing. But the first thing he speaks about it, trusting him for salvation. So if there is anyone here, there are some visitor years, I don't know you personally, but I want to tell you that. And I know some of the people here. And I want to tell you here that if you do not believe in the Son of God who died for your sins and rose from the dead, there is no salvation for you. Your Christian background will not save you. Your Christian family will not save you. Your church will not save you. Your head knowledge, biblical knowledge will not save you. The person Christ saves you. So when we repent of our sins and believe in Him, He is the only one who will save us. And He is our only source of eternal salvation. Say, source even after salvation, people listen to this carefully. Some people think that I am saved by grace. Now I am saved by works. No, you are saved by grace in the beginning. You are saved by grace as you walk your Christian life. And you will be saved by grace after you die. Grace is the only source. Your works can never replace grace. Your works can never replace the person Christ. He alone is the source of eternal salvation i'm a pastor i'm a writer i'm a preacher i'm a counselor i'm an administrator i do a lot of things and the only reason why i go to heaven is this because of christ who died for my sins and rose from the dead he is the only source of my salvation not my accomplishments the third thing you see here we come to last two in the old covenant, the law couldn't provide the perfect sacrifice for people's sins, right? We have seen that. But in the new covenant, Christ offered himself as a perfect and one-time sacrifice for people's sins. If that wasn't so, we must not. Today, in the, as we are living here today, we might have even saved money for sacrifices. Not only for life insurance and for medical insurance and for other insurances and even for marriage. Also, there would be savings for animals, because you should be offering those sacrifices repeatedly for the forgiveness of your sins. Praise God. A lot of money is saved. Hallelujah. <laughs> of course, that's secondary. But let's read how Christ has been once and for all offered. There are a couple of scriptures here which are, that is the emphasis of the author of Hebrews in all these chapters is that Christ offered once and for all his life. Brothers and sisters, please don't take it for granted. It is not an ordinary sacrifice. 
keeping as you keep listening to this there is a tendency to take it for granted and i tell you don't lose the awesome sense of christ giving his life once and for all for our sins it is no ordinary thing hear this with sobriety the following scriptures we can read together now hebrews 7:27 he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself observe once for all one person for all hebrews 9:11 to 12 again but when christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands that is not of this creation he entered once for all into the holy places not by the means of the blood of goats and calves but by the means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption praise you jesus hebrews 9:25 to 28 nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own for then he would have had to offer repeatedly since the foundation of the world but as it is he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment so christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him hebrews 10:10 to 14 and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of jesus christ once for all and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins but when christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of god waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet for by a single sacrifice he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified wow shall we just for a moment just close our eyes and just say lord lord thank you for that once and for all sacrifice of your life for my sins the blood of goats and bulls never took away sin but the sins of my beloved savior who need not come in this flesh he had come because of his love for us oh thank you jesus for your great sacrifice once and for all thank you for the blood you shed thank you for that single sacrifice because of because of which we have hope because of which we are forgiven because of which we are enjoying the promises of the old new covenant oh we thank you for the sacrifice thank you as we come finally to the last point and i would like to spend a few moments which is very important now follow me i'll be running as i come to the finishing line you know that when you draw near to the finishing line you're fasted right what did i say in the old covenant the law couldn't transform people's lives right but in the new covenant god promises a new heart to live a transformed life your transformation is not dependent on your obedience here it is dependent on the promise of god and we will quickly go through it in hebrews 8 7 to 12 one of my favorite passages in the bible is the promise of the new covenant and behold its glory and beauty brothers and sisters and our christian life will be very different if we bask our minds and hearts in these words of the new covenant and this is what he says again and this is said primarily in jeremiah chapter 31 
from verses 31 to 34 in about 600 BC this promise was made and fulfilled through the Lord Jesus Christ for if that first covenant had been faultless there wouldn't have been no occasion to look for a second for he finds filed with them when he says in Jeremiah 31 31 to 34 behold the days are coming declares the Lord when I will establish a new covenant now hear carefully I will establish it is not in the ability of man to establish this new covenant. It is solely by God alone. With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. They didn't keep the covenant. I didn't show any concern. I sent them into exile. I punished them because they were disobedient to the covenant. But now I know that these people cannot keep the covenant. I'm making the new covenant. Now follow carefully in verse 10. Shall we all read this together? 8 verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. These few words have so much of life if you think about it. It says that I, this is the covenant I will make which speaks about the new covenant. And what is the covenant here? I will. It doesn't say anything about what you should be doing in this covenant. You will only be enjoying the promises. It says that I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Why did he say? Because the old covenant, primarily the Ten Commandments, was given on the tablets of stone which they couldn't keep it. I am writing my law on your heart, which means I'm going to change your heart and give you a new heart transplantation, which can never fail. And he says, as a result of it, I will be their God and they shall be my people, which speaks about you will be my new community. You know, people, what is a very interesting thing, amazing thing? If you look into the old covenant, you know, when did God promise that I will be with you and you shall be my people? Do you know when? Very good. It says in Leviticus 28, 26 verse 3. Hear this carefully. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them. If you obey. In other words, if you obey my word. Verse 12 it says, and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. Is it easy people? Hard. <laughs> For God to live among us, we have to be obedient. That's a conditional bilateral promise. But you see in the new covenant what he says. He doesn't say anything you should walk with me in order for me to be with you. You know what he says? I will do my part. This is everything God is doing. You see that in 31, 33 he says that. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Which means I will change them and give them an obedient heart. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now what do you see that? The old covenant was based on people's obedience. Because of which God said that if you obey I will be with you and you shall be my people. In the new covenant it was not dependent on people's obedience. Hear this. It is dependent on God's promise to reform the hearts of people. Wow. I love what Jonathan Edwards says. If you have strong minds, hate this. If your mind is weak, you will lose it. 
Jonathan Edwards of the 18th century, see how beautifully he explains. I think the difference here pointed out between these two covenants lies plainly here. That in the old covenant, God promised to be their God upon condition of hearty obedience. Obedience was stipulated, required as a condition, but not promised. But in the new covenant, this hearty obedience is promised. Wow. In the old covenant, hearty obedience was a condition. But in the new covenant, hearty obedience is promised. And this is the glory and the beauty of the new covenant. And if you have no understanding, if you are still not comprehending, I pity on you, my dear brothers and sisters. You need to beat your mind to understand. For this is the most important doctrine that to get into our minds and hearts to really understand what it means to live under the new covenant. And this is supported by Titus 3 verse 5. This is how he says that. When he says, I will write my law on your uh, minds and hearts, this is how it happened. He saved us. Not because of the works done by us in righteousness. We haven't done anything. And God did not save us because of our righteousness. But according to his own mercy. And how did he show that? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who transformed, convicted, regenerated our hearts. Because of which we are converted. Conversion is a result of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. And that is what exactly he says here. Now hear carefully people. There is one thing that we need to understand. We are very individualistic in reading this. When God says that I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts which is a new heart. What will be the result? Did he say that? I will be your God and you shall be my people. Did he say that? In the singular sense? In what sense do you see? The plurality. What does he say? He says that they shall be my people. Now, what did he mean over there? I love what New Testament scholar David Peterson explains. People, we are getting a little harder. Get it. Don't miss it. Very important. Every line, every word is a gem, gold and jewel and honey, if you understand that. You know what he says? The gift of regeneration, that is, I will write my law into your minds and into your hearts, the gift of regeneration, transformation of heart, would be for his people collectively. Not just for isolated individuals, so that they might function effectively as the covenant community. It is to live together as a covenant community of God's people. In the Old Testament, it was a covenant community which failed. In the New Testament, it was a covenant community which can prevail because of the promises of God. In other words, he's telling that it is for you to live together as my people, reflecting my character that I'm giving you my new heart. It is not for just individual experience. Again, to buttress what I'm saying, I want to bring even Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright who says this. He says that the whole community of God's people will at last demonstrate in their corporate life and practice that they know and reflect the character of the God they worship. God's new covenant is for God's new society. It is a vision not merely of a new spirituality but of a new society. Now hear this carefully. The promise of a new heart is not for you to live as a better individual. Hear carefully. The promise of a new heart in the new covenant is not for you and me to live as a better individual. It is for me 
and you to live as a better community. If you are only thinking about individual sins, we have no understanding of the new covenant. It is to live as a covenant community, better community. You know, if you read New Testament letters carefully, this is what you see the fulfillment of it. Almost the entire New Testament letters that Paul wrote, Peter wrote, Jude wrote, James wrote, the author of Hebrews wrote, hear this carefully. Almost the entire New Testament letters are essentially about how to live as God's covenant community. Do you know that? It was not given to individuals except for Timothy and Titus. Even the letters that were individually written to Timothy and Titus and Philemon, it was to lead them how to build the community of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Christ said that, he didn't, the promise that he says is not that, I will build your individual life. What did he say? I will build my church. Now what I'm saying is, if you are not a part of his church, you will never enjoy these promises of the new covenant. That is not for mere individuals, but for the community. And you know how it comes close to an end? He says that in 8.11 now. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor. This is another confusion when people read. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one the brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Which speaks about the new revelation. Now, it's very controversial, right? When you read, no one need to teach. No one need to tell others, believe in the Lord Jesus, preach the gospel or believe in the Lord. Nothing I have to do. Don't go to that extreme. That's not what he intended. I love what Daniel Hayes, professor of biblical studies, explains this. Here is what he says. This verse is not saying that there will be no need at all for theological teaching or Bible study. Rather, it is saying that under the new covenant, there will be a new internalized connection between God and his people that will facilitate their ability to know him. Which means, what he's saying is that, it is God who regenerates their hearts. You cannot make people to know God. You cannot make people to obey God. You cannot reveal God to people. God himself will transform their hearts and reveal his glory. And as a result of it, what do you see? They believe in the gospel when you preach the gospel. They get activated in the church when you teach them about how to live as a member of the church. Because of God's new heart in them. And hear this, this might, affirm, this might offend some people, but this is one reason that I strongly believe in election. You know why? Because Jesus quote this in the context of election. A lot of people have no idea that Jesus quoted this in the context of election. Now open your eyes and you may be reading for the first time this scripture, John chapter 6 verses 44 to 45. Hear this, what it says. Jesus said that no one can come to me unless the father who sent me. No one. You cannot bring people to Christ. You can preach the gospel. You cannot. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him upon the last day. Now here what is his written? He, this is what he quotes again. New covenant here. It is written in the prophets and they will all be. Taught by God. What does it mean? All be taught by God. God himself will regenerate their hearts and reveal his glory and they will be converted and walk with him. How did I? A man who was on a hard hunting of living a criminal life. I tell people, if I was not saved by the grace of God, I might have become either a smuggler or a criminal. Hardcore sinner. Never people can penetrate my heart. 
stubborn stubborn guy I was bent on doing evil after evil and evil was converted at one instance in a Sai Baba temple in the Sai Baba temple when I stood before the temple and I went there actually merely in the temple to worship the Lord I stood over there and a great fear of God came upon my heart and said that Stephen you are committing sin I didn't hear anything just a powerful voice of God in my heart it's not audible but conviction you are committing sin you shouldn't be here this is not God I am the only true God it was so powerful I fell on my knees on the cyber in the cyber temple and I gave my life to Christ and here am I today who converted me who taught me who led me God himself has transformed my life and you know what the Lord Jesus said here and they will be taught by God hear this carefully the strong statement everyone who has learned and heard from the father no way they he says comes to me if they don't come Jesus is a liar only the elect will come to the Lord and it doesn't mean that we don't have to preach the gospel we are not responsible to pray we have to pray preach the gospel and whomsoever the father draws will come you cannot stop them and that is the promise of the new covenant and he says here that in in verse 11b from the least of them to the greatest because in the old covenant who had the greatest privilege to know the Lord the kings and the prophets and the high priests but he says here that anyone under the new covenant even a farmer a chaprasi a fourth class worker that people use it can know God just as a pastor can know God that is a grand covenant promise of the New Testament it says from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord the prophet Jeremiah pictured that even the most lowly believer will have the same rights of access to God as did the prophets who ministered under the old covenant and then he finally ends with these words many of us take it for granted people now if you hear this if you understand what I'm saying your mind should go mad don't take it for granted these words when it says and I'll tell you why and if you hear why I say this you will be shocked actually that we enjoy the forgiveness of God here he says here in verse 12 I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins how easily lightly we read these words God forgives our sins and our sins will be remembered no more hold on I'll show you some verses then you will appreciate this verse right in the book of Hebrews you know what you miss whenever you read that in chapter 9 verse 7 observe what kind of sins are forgiven observe the high priest in the old covenant goes and he but once a year and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the what sins are forgiven in the Old Testament unintentional sins of the people which are the sins committed by accident or ignorance some sins are not even forgiven for example adultery is there a forgiveness for adultery if you commit adultery what is the penalty if you commit murder what is the penalty if you curse your father and mother death is the penalty no forgiveness do you understand this the old covenant did not offer forgiveness for all your sins 
I'll show you one verse in order for you to understand. Numbers 15, 27 to 29. Numbers 15, 27 to 29. If one person sins in unintentionally, by accident or ignorance, he shall offer a female goat. Even for unintentional sins, you have to offer a goat. And that too for a year. Uh, that too that a year old for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake. When he sins unintentionally, to make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally. For him who is native among the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. Now immediately you see 30 verse 31. 30 and 31. But the one who does anything with a high hand, which means intentionally and defiantly. If anyone sins, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord and the person shall be cut off from among his people. He is excommunicated, ostracized, cut off from among the people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. Do you understand when it says, I will remember your iniquities no more. And here it says, your iniquity shall be upon him. There is no forgiveness for that. No atonement for that. Imagine you're living in this stage, people. What might have happened to you and me? And then it says here, and now you look at 8.12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. 1 John 1.7 says in affirmation, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from... Come on, repeat loudly. You, don't, you should understand the value of all sin if you understand what kind of sins were forgiven in the old covenant. And some sins were even having death penalty. Oh my goodness, how many people might have died today? <laughs> and 1 John 1 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now here is what you may say actually. You know what is the beauty of it when God offers it? Hear this carefully. In the new covenant, the forgiveness, with what courage God would say this? That any sin that you commit, I will forgive you. You know what is the courage of it? Hear this enlightenment. A very good insight. In the new covenant, the forgiveness of sin is offered. That is, I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will, be sin, I will remember their sins no more. Is offered with an assurance of the change of heart. I will write my laws on their minds and hearts. Do you see the wisdom of God there? No one can take it for granted, that forgiveness. When I sin, I don't take delight in that. When I grieve the Lord, I don't take delight in that. How? How is it that I don't take advantage of the forgiveness of God and indulge in sin and come to God and say, Lord, forgive me, you are promised in the new covenant. I can't do that. Why? Because he has given me a new heart. A heart that is obedient. A heart that is repentant when I sin. A heart that is broken when I break the heart of God. It is with that assurance of the new heart God tells. Any sin that you commit, I will forgive you. Because he is confident of his work in our hearts. Or else, that can become a great abuse. And I want to close this people as we participate in the breaking of the bread. Now remember those words in light of this, what the Lord Jesus said. Before he went to the cross and when he took the bread, 
He said in Luke chapter 22, verse 90 to 20, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup after they have eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Do you understand what is the new covenant in my blood? Do you understand? Do you know what it means? I shed my blood in order for the New Testament promises to fulfill in your life. It is my blood that consummated the new covenant. If Christ has not shed his blood, there wouldn't have been the fulfillment of the new covenant. Which means, in order for God to give us the new heart, Christ had to shed his blood. In order for us to live as one community, his blood had to be shed. In order for us to receive that forgiveness, infinite forgiveness. How many times you commit sin, yet you can come and say, The Lord have mercy on me, have sinned against you. And yet God, who was different in the old covenant because of no blood of the son on the cross, he says in the new covenant, any sin that you commit, I forgive you. You know why? Because of the blood of our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ. So people, the new covenant was a costly covenant because it cost the blood of the Christ. Let's stand up and pray. How grateful we must be to this glorious high priest. Oh, we thank you, Lord. We can't wait to fall at your feet, kiss your feet, wipe your feet with tears of our heart for the great sacrifice you made, the body you offered, the blood you shed. And Lord, who have we that you have elected us and you have taught us, you revealed yourself to us because of which we have believed when we heard the gospel and repented of our sins and were transformed by the power of the gospel. Oh, we thank you, Lord, for the supreme high priest. We thank you for the promises of the new covenant. Lord, I pray at this time, anyone here who is living as a nominal Christian, for namesake they were baptized, for namesake they superficially confessed, pray, Lord, at this moment, that if their heart was not transformed by you, but only imposed because of the culture that they are living in, let this day be the day of their salvation. Pray for the penetrating work of the Holy Spirit. Pray for the enlightenment. Pray and plead with you, O Lord, that you write your laws on their minds and hearts and regenerate them that they may be saved in the name of Jesus. By the blood of Christ, may they repent and turn to the cross. And Lord, we who are saved by the grace of God, help us to live as a community that reflects your glory and power and character. Forgive us, Lord. Cleanse us. Thank you so much that we have this abundant forgiveness of Christ through the blood of Christ because of the new heart you have given us. And we thank you, Lord, for this wonderful, wise promises that you have given us under the new covenant we give you all glory honor and praise 
We lift up our hands, O Lord, and we give you glory, honor, and praise for the blood of Christ and the body that he offered on the cross for these covenant promises to be fulfilled in us. We are excited, we are humble, and we give you all glory, honor, and praise. Come, O Lord Jesus, soon. Remember, O Lord, your promise. Remember, Jesus, remember words that you spoke will never fall on the ground but will fulfill. Remember your promise that you will come and take us to be with you forever and ever. Come, O Lord, Maranatha, come and take us away from this world that we may dwell in the glorious presence of our heavenly Father and live eternally with you. How glorious that life will be. We have no imagination. We imagine so many things, but we have no imagination of the glorious life. And we pray and eagerly look forward. And may we never lose sight and heart of your coming along. Come and take us to be with you. Amen. Thank you for listening to the message. We believe you have been greatly encouraged in your heart. Stephen David also writes articles that are relevant to today's generation. You may read them on his blog www.messageforourage.blogspot.com I repeat www.messageforourage.blogspot.com you may also email him at cstephendavid at gmail.com. I repeat, c-s-t-e-p-h-e-n-d-a-v-i-d at g-m-a-i-l dot c-o-m. Grace and peace be to you.